This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Welcome back to the Mormon Women Project. This is Meredith Nelson. In this episode, I interview Melissa Inouye about her recent book, Crossings, a bald Asian-American Latter-day Saint woman scholar's ventures through life, death, cancer, and motherhood, not necessarily in that order. It is published as part of the BYU Maxwell Institute's Living Faith series. Melissa's book is a compilation of contemplative and scholarly essays on faith and the church organization, of family newsletters, song lyrics, and playful doodles, and of letters to her still young children. All of this blends together to form a picture of one bright and mighty Latter-day Saint life, refined to its current state by her discipline, by discipleship, and by a faith community that has challenged her, brought her casseroles, and taught her the holiness of humans. Melissa recently took leave from her position at the University of Auckland to return to the United States with her husband and four children as she continues her fight with cancer. Clearly unstoppable, Melissa began work immediately at the Church History Department, where she works on documenting the global history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our prayers are with her and her family. So Melissa, one of the delights of your book is that it follows your family trail all over the world uh, for work, for study, mostly via your family newsletters. And so I thought, it would be appropriate to start by asking where your family is right now. Well, we've moved to Draper, Utah, of all places. From Auckland, New Zealand, right? Yep. Yeah, it was kind of, um, it was kind of precipitous. Basically, um, we just decided, just in consultation with my doctors, that the United States was probably a better place for us because we have all this family support. So we've, just moved back and the kids are in school and they like it. I found out from someone at church that my oldest son um, sits with her son at lunch. So it's so great to know that he sits with someone at lunch and another son is the, uh, we call him the sprout is was invited to a birthday party last weekend. So that's kind of good that he has some sort of friend and, The kids love running around in the kind of nature reserve across from the house and chasing ducks and feeding grasshoppers, catching grasshoppers and feeding them to the ducks. So (laughs) very great. That sounds lovely. And you started a new job. That's right. So I, I am working at the church history department doing global history. So can you talk about what your work is going to entail there or are you still figuring that out? Uh, well, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the whole project, but I think the project of writing histories of people in all the different places where the church exists is well underway. There are country by country or region by region or state by state, city by city, just kind of these various kinds of histories of people in different places, not always a country. And the challenge is you know, how do we tell the stories of the saints in a way where the voices of the local people come out and the understanding and the authority of the local people comes out in those narratives. 
Wow, wonderful. Well, I really look forward to hearing what comes out of that project. That's been a focus of the Mormon Women Project as well. We have interviews with women now from almost 50 countries around the world, and it really is interesting to see both the unity in the voices from all these different places, and also just what different challenges people face and what different facets of the faith really shine, depending on where the light is illuminating it. Right, that is so interesting. And actually, I think about about that many, I think a few more are actually available online already. If you just go to the church history website and Google like global LDS history. I'll find that link and make sure that we link to that because I wasn't even aware that that resource is available yet. So yeah, yeah, it is. It's not not all the countries are done. I think they're a little more than halfway through. But um, and it's not just countries, actually. So, for example, there's a history of the church in Hawaii that's separate from the history of the church in the United States, because when the history of the church begins in Hawaii, it's not, you know, a U.S. state. So, Awesome. Well, I'm really excited about your work there and wish you good luck in it. Thank you. So I'm just going to read one line of the introduction from your book. It says, I hope that this collection of crossings, writings that bridge the gaps of space, culture, and generations, will illuminate the sacred spaces in which we connect with our fellow beings, even in seemingly mundane and non-religious contexts. So Melissa, I'm curious why human connection is the focal point of your lessons to your children, because the book really is written to them, right? Hmm. Well, I think that's the source of our strength. It's the source of our power our knowledge, our understanding about the world, our sense of security. I think that's the key to everything. So, and then the irony, or maybe that's not quite the right word, but the the problem is that sometimes we allow our ideologies and this idea of truth to exclude the possibility of certain kinds of human connections or the idea that certain kinds of human connections can be valuable. And I think that's very impoverishing. And, you know, if you, when you're considering your own mortality and thinking, you know, what do you want to leave your kids with? The question is really with whom do you want to leave your kids? You want to leave your kids people, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's where I think life's richness comes. So you've studied lots of faith traditions around the world. Is there something unique about human connection within Latter-day Saint theology and practice? I'm not sure if it's unique because I haven't experienced every single different culture. I mean, many faith traditions bring people together. But what I think is very peculiar and very distinctive about us is that we are always getting together for various reasons, usually not very exalted reasons. You know, sacrament meeting, if you look at the total number of minutes in sacrament meeting, you can probably, you know, find a few moments in which people feel the spirit or um, a couple of minutes in which there's this kind of deep sense of peace and reverence. But for so much of the two-hour block, now the two-hour block, once the three-hour block, You're just kind of sitting, listening to people talk about stuff, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, but because we spend so much time together, 
and get to know each other in these various ways through activities or through, you know, taking care of each other or through knowing what sister so-and-so tends to say in Sunday school or what brother so-and-so tends to say when he bears his testimony. All of those things kind of add up to, to a kind of interweaving in the community where you feel a connection to people, where people feel a kind of loyalty to each other. And I think that's really valuable. Mm, I love how you called it the people warp across which we must weave our lives. Mm. I thought that was a beautiful metaphor among many in your book. So diversity becomes a big theme in your book. And the value of diversity seems like an important message you have for your children. I wanted to read, actually, if I may, one paragraph from your book, from an essay called uh, Rotten Things Rotten, Good Things Good. You wrote, You meet so many different people at church, scholars, homeschoolers, feminists, survivalists, professional street performers, elite runners, appliance delivery people, chicken sexers, lightning strike survivors, the guy who runs Disneyland, big jerks, lifelong friends, musicians, and just today, husband and wife intercontinental ballistic missile operators. Among my sisters and brothers, I have lived not one life, but many. So I assume those are all from your real life experience. Yeah, those are actual people. And I haven't (laughs) even mentioned the writer of Rohan and the horse in the writer of Rohan. Yeah, it's like my claim to fame. I, I love the sentiment you expressed that you have lived many lives through your contact with these other people. I'm wondering if you have a story or two. It can be from your book or not from your book just of connecting with someone at church who's very different from you, who you might not have expected to connect with? Um, yeah, definitely. So, you know, there's just everyone at church is so different because they have such distinctive lives. But um, just for example, you know, there's uh, in one of the wards I've been in, there have been some people, some older ladies who have had very conservative political views and who have said things that I would think are kind of shocking when it comes to um, race, uh, the history of race in the church, the role of race in the Book of Mormon, but who have been my survival net when I was doing chemotherapy and needed someone to watch my kids and feed them and take care of them and keep them from killing each other. Um on someone who's kind of more my age. I remember once I was in a ward with someone who who said something about how she was my visiting teachy and she said something about how Obama was a Muslim and so he was letting Muslim women go through the airport without being screened or something like that. And so many things about that just kind of jarred my own political positions and my own kind of ideas about, you know, religion in, in America. And, and so at that moment, I had this kind of reaction of contempt and scorn, like, I can't believe you're actually saying this, you are crazy. But then I had to suppress that because she was my visiting teacher. And later on, when she came over to my house, and I was um, visiting with her, I asked her to share an experience where she recently felt the spirit. And she shared this experience and as she shared it, I also felt the spirit and it was a sacred and holy moment. And I just 
you know, it, people are sacred and holy and it's so foolish to allow, you know, certain kind of checkbox kinds of things to allow us to be divided from each other. I mean, there's so many ways in which I, you know, I violate someone's list of checkboxes, but I, I hope that I hope that they would give me a chance to just be human with them. Hmm. I promise I'm not going to read your whole book aloud, but that made me think of another section in an essay you wrote called Conversations Are Like Casseroles. You wrote, some people might feel as if chatting up angry activists or ignorant reactionaries at church is not worth their time. And yet, engaging someone in dialogue requires just the same generosity and gumption as any other sort of Christ-like service. When someone needs a meal, we automatically volunteer to spend one to two hours of precious time washing greens, stir-frying chicken, cutting fruit, and delivering everything to the door. When someone needs to move, it's a no-brainer to spend half the day cleaning bathrooms, painting walls, and schlepping chests of drawers. So when someone takes a stance on a gender or sexual orientation issue that is completely opposite from our own, and yet fundamental to that person's testimony of the gospel, we should be willing to give 20 minutes to listen. So that's what I heard you saying just now when you related that experience with that sister, that we dishonor each other and we're not showing Christ-like love when we won't even listen to each other. Right, and when we won't even treat the other person like someone who's living, breathing, intelligent, and basically good, you mm -hmm. know? Mm, sacred and holy, as you said. And it, but I, I do agree, actually, when, when I hear that. Um, I feel like you're when you, when you read that section, I feel like you're preaching to me. Like, I, I, I do think that it's actually really hard. <laughs> it's much easier to help someone move than it is to, you know, engage on certain issues that are just that just kind of push buttons. Yeah. And so kind of related to this idea of diversity and having these conversations is a theme in your book that's pretty prominent. It's the idea of marginality in the church and living on the margins or, or feeling maybe removed from, from the core membership of the church. And this is something you have experience with. We have another interview with you um, on the Mormon Women Project where you talk a lot about this, but I wonder if you could describe again a little of your experience on the margins. Sure. So, um, <laughs> I guess I just, it's hard to name all the ways in which I feel um, <laughs> alone. So, I'm usually um, the only bald woman in the room. Um, I'm often the only woman of color in the room, though definitely in Auckland, New Zealand, that was very refreshing. Um, our wards there are very Tongan Samoan and Maori, so that was really fun. But um, I'm often the only, I, I, I often feel pretty liberal for the room, though in academia, then I feel really conservative and religious for the room. So, yeah. And then, you know, physically speaking, not just having to do with the church, when you when you feel deathly ill, as I have felt and sometimes feel, then you also feel very marginal. People are talking about, you know, their long-term plans and, you know, all those kinds of things. And you just think, I'm just not a part of that conversation at all. So, so the thing I've learned about marginality 
is that it makes you humble and it forces you to give others a pass because you know, if when when you're the bald woman in the room, how can you possibly feel critical about someone for their hair or their <laughs> style or you know anything like that? Um, it makes you feel quiet. I think I noticed when I was feeling really sick uh, the first time I had cancer, I drove much more slowly, which is kind of interesting. So I think it's a kind of thoughtful way to be. And um, I think that it helps you to both experience vulnerability, but then also to, you know, develop resilience to lots of things. And I, I, I found that I think as a parent, um, I've gotten better at not flying off the handle since I've been sick. Mm-hmm. Um, as a liberal for the church in most places person i've gotten better at um at being kind of patient and um modest when discussing my you know personal political or theological or whatever ideological views so i think all those things help us to understand the largeness of the world, you know, where, where um, Enoch sees everything and he says, now I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. So when you feel like nothing, you see a lot of the big picture, which is, I think, part of the plan of salvation, understanding the big picture, seeing as God might see people. I love that. There's another line in your book that says, when a hand gets a wound, we don't ignore it because the feet are fine. And I think we tend to marginalize each other sometimes at church by saying, well, she complains a lot about women in the church or he complains about LGBTQ issues, but that's not how most of us feel. Therefore, we don't need to talk about that. And I think that's a really great metaphor you use. You have so many great metaphors in the book that we don't ignore an injured foot because our head is okay. Right. If we want, if we're serious when we talk about the body of Christ, and if we're serious about brothers and sisters as the kind of the core of our relationships, then I, it's not okay to lose one person. We can't just slough them off, you know. They're not. We're not dead skin. We're like living things. Having said that, from a global perspective, when you think about something like LGBTQ issues. You can't ignore people in the global south who have an ex- a very stark view of homosexuality and, and whose sense of right and wrong is tied to that view. Mm-hmm. So the inconvenience of a global church is that we're all stuck with each other and um, we can't slough off anyone, even when we think their views are deeply wrong or incorrect or rooted in false assumptions. And, and that's the, the problem that we have in the church in terms of um, our positions on controversial social issues, because 
our brothers, our brotherhood and sisterhood encompasses everyone in the world. And so, you know, sometimes, I, you know, I have so many friends and I myself become very impatient sometimes with um, the pace of change in the church on certain issues. But at the same time, I think we need to be sensitive to other kinds of pain and other kinds of exclusion um, that that are felt by people around the world when there are these kind of drastic social shifts. And I think we have to be aware of that as well. Yeah, the margins extend in both directions. Uh-huh, we do. So talking about these institutional changes, in the book you talk about how change happens or maybe should happen both from the bottom up and the top down. I'm curious, what are some examples of the bottom up work that you advocate? Like what are things that we should be doing as members on the ground working to improve the church as an institution? I think that this new focus on um, less kind of formal Sunday church and encouragement for kind of home study, studying groups, you know, is a way in which we can tailor our teaching and the things that we're talking about to issues that are really relevant for our kids and for, um, you know, for everyone. So I think we could, for example, um, when the two-hour church was announced, there was this some sort of, you know, provision for people being able to get together to have um, you know, to talk about the gospel, that's a great opportunity to talk about, you know, complex, tricky issues, to um, introduce new ways of, um, to introduce ways of, of being together that are, you know, tolerant and inclusive and loving. So I think these new structures have made some space for that. In addition to that, within the kind of existing formal structures, like even within two-hour church, we can do things like, you know, just asking if we know if we see something, say something. Um, you know, if we notice that there were no female speakers in sacrament meeting, um, we can say, you know, it's probably really important to have women and men speaking in church because. You know, the young people today count. They're used to counting and, and they will notice these things. So, you know, we just, just little things like that, I think, can really change our local culture. And when our local culture changes, then, then the whole church changes because that's basically what the church is local. Mm hmm. I really love, I really appreciate your compassionate approach toward church leaders and toward the church as a human institution. One other paragraph I wanted to read is from an essay called The Problem We Want to Have. It says, like the crosshairs of a scope, the vertical obligations that support the order of the church and the horizontal obligations through which we learn from one another and fulfill sacred covenants on an equal footing as children of God will help us stay centered on Christ, though probably never right on the mark. It's just a very compassionate and practical way of thinking about how the church really functions and how both of those obligations are meant to help us stay centered and focused on that goal of becoming like Christ. Yeah, and I think I've developed this real appreciation 
um, since being sick for hierarchical power. And hierarchical power doesn't just exist in, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's everywhere. It's in, you know, government. It's in, you know, schools and education. It's in um, family relationships, like especially, you know, in my case, Asian family relationships, you know, you're supposed to pay attention to your elders and listen to them. And what I've, you know, I've, as a professor, I also, you know, have a role in which I expect students to pay attention to me and to listen because I've got something to teach them. And and I think that um, what I've learned as a cancer patient who really, really, really needs all the power I can get is that it's really helpful when good people have power and influence over you. You know, when, when I'm in the middle of wondering how long I'm going to survive and um, if I will ever get better and if my family will be okay, there are these people like my uncles, my aunties, um, you know, certain church leaders who's who have moved me through their um, the spirit they've helped me to feel you know I really appreciate that power it's really hard to have faith all by yourself and when someone who is in a position of influence over you does something to help you that that influence is really significant does that make sense so like I, I don't want to just like be all by myself getting personal revelation all by myself and and like be completely it's just me and God because mm-hmm. it's really hard to have faith sometimes. It's really hard to have spiritual strength. And when you give people power over you, they can give that to you. Thank you for that testament. I really felt the power of what you were saying. I wanted to read, since we're on the topic of pain and the prospect of death, there's a beautiful letter in your book that you wrote to your daughter shortly after she was born. And you talk about your mother's painful struggle with cancer before she passed away. And you describe that and you also describe your labor. You wrote, I lie here in the bed thinking about your birth and mom's death and how pain was a hallmark of both experiences. In the case of your birth, it became a source of triumph. Perhaps when we meet again, I will learn that mom's pain too became deeply meaningful to her. I wonder if in a way the involuntary pain and anxiety of death reprised the involuntary pain and anxiety that were also part of birth. I believe that on the other side of death, the side we can't see, there is also peace and happiness in equal measure. Death, like birth, is simply another great spiritual passage, and this transition is marked by great contrasts that make it meaningful, solemn, sorrowful, and joyous all at the same time. Um, Just remarkable words and thoughts. You've now more than once faced the prospect of death in your ongoing battle with cancer, which you're really candid about in the book. And I have to say that the humor and the realness with which you approach it gave me courage even reading it. But to close our conversation, I wondered if you would share what you've learned about the atonement 
or if and how your connection to Christ has changed through cancer? I think that because of my illness, I've had a couple of experiences in which I've realized that I, I, I'm just, no matter how awesome I am, quote unquote, I, I am just completely dependent on God and, and there's, I just feel like, um, before I was sick, you know, I was the kind of quintessential oldest child, you know, very achievement oriented, very goal oriented. And I wanted to, you know, do this and that. I went back to my journal when I was in sixth grade and I had had this goal to like, you know, be the top academic girl in the school. And I, I, it was kind of shocking. I just watched my six-year-old self kind of relentlessly like tracking my progress towards this goal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought it was a little frightening. So, so my whole life, you know, I, I kind of lived with this idea that I was awesome because I set awesome goals and I did awesome things. But um, then when you get cancer, you realize that that you're super weak and completely messed up and in dire need of assistance and kindness and patience and grace and miraculous healing and all of those kinds of things. And I just... Um, I, again, I feel very marginal, very small, but that has helped me to to recognize my dependence on God and to feel that truly, you know, if whatever I do in terms of parenting my kids or in the work that I do, um, I'll just do what I can and trust it sounds so cliche, but just trust that um, what God gives me strength to do, that I will do. And as long as I can. <laughs> Seems like a long time, though. Like, for example, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I was in the, sh- I was, I had just gotten my port reinstalled, which is kind of demoralizing because it's like this piece of medical hardware that goes into your body and it sticks out like a lump um, in your chest and they stab you through it and you get your toxic chemicals through it and stuff. And I had gotten it out several months ago when I thought that I was done with cancer. But then, you know, in June it came back. So in August, I was kind of packing up my house, getting ready to go to New Zealand, uh, to leave New Zealand and go to America and all this work. I was in the shower and I had just gotten this new port. So I was looking down at the Band-Aid on my chest but I just love the showers. I just love showers. I'm Japanese. And um, it was like so hot. And I think I was singing some sort of song. And um, I just felt really happy. So life is terrible and life is wonderful at the same time. It's just startling how how those two things, those two states of being coexist. 
That was the feeling I got from your book just the whole way through. Wow, like terrible, wonderful, terrible, wonderful. That's how the church is. That's how our lives are. That's how our families are. But it's all fermenting together to create this beautiful, delicious loaf of bread that hopefully we'll all get to partake of together someday. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for your time and for writing and for continuing to write even through the warfare that you're going through right now. I want you to feel my blessing. I am praying for you actively all the time and for your family and their transition. And I'm really glad that your kids are getting invited to birthday parties and all of that. (laughs) Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. Thank you. If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.